Hey friends, I'm so excited today. I have a very special guest on the show. Her name is Amy Gardner. She is a fellow dietitian. She's also a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and a registered yoga teacher. Amy's got some very unique experience. She combines both her eating and exercise disorder expertise with her yoga training. She's from Boston and she's got over 20 years of clinical experience as a registered dietitian and her own personal journey, which I'm really excited to talk to her about today and dive into. Guys, she's owned of Metro West Nutrition LLC, which is a multidisciplinary group where she supervises 14 other clinicians. She provides clinical training on her signature eye move method, which we're going to talk about today and helping other clinicians use this technique to help their own clients struggling with compulsive exercise. Amy, thank you for being here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jessica. I'm really excited to be here. Now you're from Boston. Do you still live there? I still live there. Yes. Outside of the city. I'm I'm in the suburbs. Okay. Now I have to ask, are you a Bruins fan? Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. It is on my bucket list to go. We are huge Bruins fans, which is kind of random being from New Mexico. We have no hockey, like it's warm here, (laughs) but, um, what's your favorite part about going to the games? So I actually, I'll be honest. I, we do not go to the games partly because we're, we, we tend to ski a lot. So, (sighs) so that's, it's my, you know, my kids have not gotten into hockey because we, we knew that that would cut into our ski time, but, but we, we often watch them on the, on TV. That's awesome. Yeah. You got to prioritize fun for yourself. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah. And I don't, if it was up to me, I don't know that I would be watching the hockey games if I'm being completely transparent, but yeah, I did. I, you know, that was a a, a sport I love to watch growing up and, um, and you know, my husband's a really big uh, Bruins fan. So, so it's a fun family activity. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. So you're a skier, whole family skis. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got, how many kids do you have? Two. Two, two boys. Are they boys? I have a son who's 12 and a daughter who's nine. You got, okay. You got the pair. I've got two boys. Um, but either way it's fun, two kids and yeah, that's awesome. So when you're not outside playing in the snow, um, I know you do a lot of work with people healing their relationship with exercise. And before we dive into, you know, what is compulsive exercise, what's beneficial exercise and get through real granular on that. Can you tell me just a little bit about why you're so passionate helping others heal their relationship with exercise? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, in my book, I talk about my own personal recovery um, from an eating disorder and a big component of that was compulsive exercise. And, you know, I didn't identify it at the time. It it, it felt very normalized as an athlete um, in our culture to be, you know, you know, pushing past uh, physical discomfort, even pain. And, um, and, and so I think in when I, I worked um, in, in a health club setting for a while, when I first started in my career, and, and also was simultaneously working in my first uh, position at an eating disorder program. And it was really fascinating to be doing both of those things at the same time, because I started seeing a lot of eating disorder patterns in members at the, at the gym I was working at, um, both in terms of like their exercise patterns and their eating patterns that they were reporting to me. So what, uh, one of the personal trainers was also a physical therapist and I were talking and we decided to do a little research and, and, and provide a presentation to a group that, uh, basically is like a governing, uh, agency for health club managers and fitness professionals. So we put this together. We did a lot of research on compulsive exercise in the literature. It's often called um, exercise addiction. I, I intentionally don't use that word because it's, it's doesn't, it doesn't encompass really the whole um, picture and addictions. I feel like it's like so loosely used and 
you know, it's, 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 it's a little bit um, hard, but anyway, so we did some research and presented this uh, program to health club managers, fitness professionals, and it was so eye-opening because I, it just, it just, we named it. And, and I realized at the time that there really wasn't a lot of discussion about it. There was, there were very few resources, clinical resources and, and, and resources for people that were struggling. So I remember at that time, like, and since then periodically thinking, oh, someone's going to come up with something to help people with this. And all of a sudden, one time I was like, I think it was during my yoga teacher training. I was in Shavasana. I was like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I have, I've done the, I, cause I, I had a moment where I was like, I am so grateful for the relationship I have with movement and how it's helped my recovery. Whereas at one point, like during my eating disorder, it was very much about escaping my body, getting out of very uncomfortable sensations I was having. It, it became something very helpful and a resource I could, I could use a tool I could use in my recovery process. And I was like, there's a, there's the way we're approaching this in, in eating disorder treatment. And in, in general, is this all or nothing mentality? Like, all right, you can get exercise once you recover, once you are, um, you know, you're, you're nutritionally, re, you know, rehabilitated or whatever, but it was never, we never really talk about it until then. Right. And so I wanted to figure out a way to bridge this gap and start having a conversation earlier and, and, and help people, like we're helping them with their relationship with food, help them with their relationship with movement. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you had your own personal journey with this, right? Where at one point exercise was more pathological and then it became something powerful and healing. Yes. And I think you're right. We see that I work with a lot of professional athletes and like their job is to push their body beyond its capacity. So you bring up this gray line, right? Like where is it pathological versus pushing yourself in a productive way? So how do you define the difference between compulsive and beneficial exercise? Yeah, that's a really great um, question. And I think it is really important to distinguish that, um, you know, athletes aren't necessarily like compulsive exercises because they're exercising in a, in a, you know, to a greater extent or have more quantity of exercise. It's more about like the quality of the relationship and yet athletes are definitely at high risk for, for compulsive exercise. Um, but when we think about beneficial energy, I'm, I'm sorry, beneficial exercise, it, it increases energy. It improves our mood. It's passion driven. So we think about people that are really passionate about their sport or whatever their activity is. Um, it's scheduled around their life. Um, and if, if obviously if you're an athlete, it can be a big part of your life, but you're not foregoing other activities in your life for exercise. It's a source of enjoyment and it respects the body's limits. Rest days are valued and, um, you, you know, you may be uncomfortable at times, but you're not pushing past pain and not exercising through, uh, injury and hurting the body. Uh, compulsive exercise, on the other hand, exhausts the body, it lowers the mood and it increases anxiety. It's punishment driven and very obligatory. Um, life is like scheduled around exercise. So people might actually unnecessarily forego like going out to breakfast with a friend or, um, doing something really fun because they need to get a certain amount of movement in. Um, whereas we know, you know, social activity connecting with others is a very important aspect of well-being. Um, it also ignores the body's cues and pushes past those limitations. And um, even I've had a number of clients that have pushed off having important surgeries like knee surgeries because they knew they wouldn't be able to exercise afterwards and they couldn't, they couldn't tolerate that, that thought. 
Okay. So I just want to recap what you said, because I think it's so good. So you're saying that when we're, when we're engaging with a productive and beneficial relationship with exercise, it's passionately driven. We love it. It empowers us. We feel good in it. And one of the things you said that I think is so important is that rest days are valued where you feel permission to take a day off and not just permission, but you know, it's a part of the training process. It's important. It's going to, it's going to enhance your experience with exercise and even your, your, your ability to perform on the other days. I love that you said that because I, I have so many of my athletes that feel that the rest days and the days off are, are like a sign of, um, lack of commitment or unproductive. yes, mm-hmm. unproductive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, if we look at the more, um, compulsive exercise, you're saying it's obsessively driven and it's going to be a priority over everything. So social life, um, family mm-hmm. comes in town, you still have to get it in mm-hmm. like it, there isn't, it's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I'm thinking specifically of one particular person who reached out to, um, join one of the groups I lead. And, and he said, you know, the only reason he feels like he was able to meet his, his now wife was because when he was in his graduate program, he couldn't exercise as much. And he was forced to be in, in, in community and, and, and interact with other people. But he's like, you know, I, you know, my cycling took up so much time in my life that I wasn't, it affected dating. I wasn't able to like, you know, be social. I had probably, you know, it was all my focus. And so, and I didn't really have things to talk about because I was so, you know, that that was so central in my life. And it's, it doesn't mean that like, you know, that, 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 an activity can't be a really big part of your life and a way you connect with other people. But I think there's a, for some people, it takes on another level of, of compulsion and, and eliminates other parts of their life that they value. Yeah. I mean, this guy's case, his soulmate, right? (laughs) Right. So, and and I think since then he's realized that it's also affected his relationship, you know, beyond that point that it's, it's been, it's a way for him to disconnect and not be as present in, in relationship to. Wow. Wow. That's so powerful. So Amy, what do you notice about the normalization of excessive or compulsive exercise in our culture? Yeah. I think that's a big reason why this is such an unknown issue. And I know like a lot of people show up at, at groups and they'll say, you know, it's so nice to have a place where people aren't saying, oh, gee, I wish I had that problem. Right. Like they're struggling with compulsive exercise and people are like, well, no, that's a good thing. Right. Cause I think we, you know, we tend to think of things in, of things in black and white and with exercise, we do get the message very commonly that the more, the more, the better, right. You know, there's this value and virtue assigned to pushing your body. And, and it's not to say that pushing your body can't feel really good, but but there's this, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of drive to do more, do go harder. And it's all driven by external kind of uh, measurement. Like, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, thinking about the number of tools and devices we have to measure activity now, right? Between smartwatches and Fitbits and um, fitness trackers and apps and ways that we can kind of track each other's progress and kind of compare ourselves to other people, what other people are doing. And it takes us out of our body, right? And so there's a lot of this external pressure, like, oh, well, my friend Sally did this today and now I feel like I need to keep up with her. And there is this normalization that people are doing a lot or more exercise is better, makes you somehow a better person just by, I think through social media and and um, a lot of wellness inf- influencers sharing, you know, what, you know, mental, like, like, you know, kind of thing, no, no pain, no gain, all those messages we get um, on a regular basis about like what exercise should look like. Yeah. I love that. So you're saying the threshold where it pushes us past like pushing our bodies and like trying to advance ourselves physically in exercise and moving to more of this compulsive exercise is when it's externally driven, right. Instead of like us feeling our body and feeling, you know, us getting stronger or, you know, pushing our cardiorespiratory system. It's like, oh, I'm pushing myself because I'm comparing myself to 
Sally or whatever. <laughs> and I'm actually ignoring these internal cues that are screaming at me, or I, I don't even have a awareness of them. I think so mm-hmm. many people that I've worked with, um, it's like, they're not even connected to their body. There's a disconnected experience during exercise. Like they're just checked out. And that's scary too, because some, you know, particularly folks with trauma have a decreased awareness of what's going on physically and have a higher threshold for pain. Mm-hmm. So there is a more risk of injury if they're not paying some attention to what's going on internally and noticing their heart rate, noticing pain signals and, and, and you know, things that would be indicative of need to stop or take rest. Um, yeah. So I think it is, it's, it's tricky because I think there's, a, I don't want to, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that can kind of live in the gray. And I think there's a, there's some value and like, kind of like, Oh, look, I like it. Like, you know, I, I got my personal best or I advanced in this area and to see that accomplishment and achievement can be really great. And like anything else, right. It can also on the flip side can be problematic. So I think there's always this, you can look at it from two, two angles. And it's, it's just, I think it's a, it's a, it's very personal to kind of this, this work is personal to understand, like, is this helping me or is it making me feel really bad about myself? Or is it, helping my body or is it making my body feel really tired and in pain all the time? Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. Cause my next question was going to be, how do you help people dif- differentiate between a healthy competitive drive versus yeah. an unhealthy competitive yeah. drive? Cause I'm thinking, so I, I do CrossFit now. I, I joke that I totally drank that juice and I love it. Yeah. And yeah. I ha- like, I have to admit when I started it, I was in more of a vulnerable position. I had just had my first baby. And so, you know, my body was, I was reacquainting myself with my yeah. body. Like, yeah. Um, lots of transitions going on in my life. So I remember I was in a vulnerable spot. And at that point, yeah. the competitive side of me didn't really help me. It did make me yeah. feel bad about myself. I pushed my body probably harder than I, well, harder than I should have, let's be real. Yeah. And, yeah. but now being in a better space, you know, the competition is really healthy for me to be. And I found mm-hmm. it's like helped me almost reconnect with like that inner high school competitive athlete, like in a positive way. Yeah. I think a lot of athletes really gravitate to CrossFit for that reason. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Yeah. And I, again, I think it's really, you know, you, you know, uh, you know, for yourself, like looking at like what you want to get out of exercise, what's important to you. And I actually just, um, there was one person in in the group and I just shared this in, in my newsletter, but you know, one of the things for her was, you know, she, you know, her triathlon training was a really big part of her eating disorder. And she recognized the connection and it was a way for her to disconnect and isolate from other people. Whereas I know a lot of people use triathlon training to connect with other people and they're going out to eat afterwards. And there it's, it's a very positive thing for her. It wasn't. And she recognized the need to let go of that through her recovery. Um, and, but, but the only alternative that was presented was like, you know, walking 30 minutes a day. That was like kind of the prescribed, okay exercise. And she was like, it really just she's like, it was so boring. I didn't like it. It didn't feel like exercise. And what she was able to recognize through work with her team and doing work in group was that she needed something more fun, a little more thrilling. So she started doing rock wall climbing and it, it, it provided this input that her body needs. Like we realized through some of her sensory ex- sensory exploration that she needed a lot more proprioceptive input, which you know, biking, running, a lot of the things she'd been doing was offering, but the rock wall climbing allowed her to be like fully engaged, connect with other people. It was fun, but it wasn't like, 
it wasn't um, didn't have uh, the same capacity for becoming something compulsive and excessive as the triathlon training had been for her. So it was really like that's just a good example of um, just real someone getting really clear on like what they're looking for in their movement relationship and what's important to them and making sure that whatever goals they're 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 creating are aligned with values and they're, they're getting to know their system and what what kinds of movement benefit their system and what actually doesn't because when we're in a like what I a more fight or flight state, like when we're activated sympathetically, actually doing something that's going to put us push us further into that sympathetic state. So something like cardiovascularly might actually make us feel worse after than better. So kind of in those moments, it might so it's so we do a lot of exploration around like what 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 feels better when you're in that state. Let's try this out, see how that feels, and giving people different tools to to help them regulate their nervous system so that the only go-to isn't exercise. Oh, that's awesome. And that's where it pulls away from the compulsion then because they have options. Yes. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. Now. So who's going to be at higher risk for compulsive exercise? Cause as I'm thinking this through, I'm thinking like it is a gray area and I love that you live in the gray. Cause you're right. We can look at this from different angles. Um, but I think it would be helpful to know like who's at high risk. So if we're in that category, we can start to really look at our relationship with exercise and maybe go down this rabbit hole. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly, um, in the research and just in, in practice, what I've seen, the people that are at higher risk are athletes, people that have made, um, built a life around their sport because, and especially people as they advance in their sport, there's more of a, a likelihood for a variety of reasons. And then people with trauma histories, because, you know, there is this drive to get out of the body, to run away from the body, to kind of escape in some way. And then certainly people with, with higher levels of anxiety and or obsessive compulsive tendencies. So those are the things that kind of are precursors that we would see it's because really the, the exercise is an attempt to regulate every, you know, people are trying. So I, I think there's that, that important caveat that there is an attempt to self, to care for self and to, to kind of bring, bring the self into a better space. So I, I think that's really important to, to keep in mind. So what I'm, you know, the, the goal of um, the work I do is to help provide an alternative so that you don't have to like hurt your body exhaust, you know, you know, and, and, and you can find a different, a different relationship with exercise that, that works more productive. Yeah, exactly. More, yeah, more beneficial, more life-giving. So, <laughs> life-giving. Yes. Well, and I like how you said earlier, it, it's a, a relationship that when you engage in the activity, you feel like empowered afterwards, you feel good afterwards, you yes. feel energetic. You don't feel like worn down and beaten down. Right, you and, you're going to pass out in the shower. Right. <laughs> right. Life-giving. I love that. Now, what are the risks of someone who is engaging in compulsive exercise and continues to do so? Mm. Well, it's, it, there's a significant cardiovascular risk, you know, when you're depleted and, and there's just, you know, and, and you're also risking really low blood sugar, depending on how you're, how you're fueling your body. And there's a lot of risk of stress fractures and, you know, overuse injuries, which, which you see. And, and honestly, for some folks, because it's so hard for them to stop creating permanent damage to their bodies in that regard. Um, you know, we know that exercise is really helpful for bone health, but when it's combined with um, relative energy deficiency or, uh, you know, or not enough food, basically, we also see that it has a counterproductive effect. It actually decreases bone density. So there's, and, and decreases hormonal production for, and for women, it can lead to infertility and issue, and actually for probably for men as well. Like it can, it can cause a decrease in testosterone and, and lead to decrease sex drive and reproductive function. 
Yeah. Yeah. So many things can pop up from this. Do you find that people are resistant to the idea of being a compulsive exerciser? And the reason I ask this is because I, I see this a lot where I'll, ha- I'll get referrals. I work with our university here in town. And so I get a lot of athletes who have stress fractures, low iron levels and all the things. Right. And I'll talk to them about how nutrition might be part of the root cause and we'll have to do some nutritional rehabilitation. And we'll talk about like the level of nutrition they need. And they're not quite wanting to get there, right? Like some of these athletes need four or five, 6,000 calories and they're barely managing 1500. But then the alternative then is like, all right, well, let's back off on some of the training because you have stress fractures or we got to get your iron levels up. And that it's, it's almost like this disconnect. And I see this resistance to wanting to admit that there is a compulsion compulsion to exercise. And so where do you think that comes from? And do you think, I mean, do you think it's our cultural reinforcement? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a lot of things. I think that it's certainly culturally reinforced to be um, doing more. And there's a sense of, you know, I, I think there's an identity built around that, right? Around the body, around the, the level of physical fitness. But then I think that beyond that, that when people are in a state of, of starvation, which, um, or, you know, energy deficit, there's, they, they generally don't feel good most of the time. And a lot of people would describe feeling only feeling good when they exercise. And there's a reason for that, you know, um, when people are in energy deficit or are struggling with, you know, not, you know, basically not having enough energy available on their body there, um, when you exercise muscle gets broken down and it releases glucose and it feels good. Like your body's like, Ooh, you know, this is like almost like I just ate, but I, I have it. So, so I think a lot of people associate that's the only time they feel good because then outside of that, because they're exhausted and because we know that overexercise lowers the mood and, and increases anxiety, they're feeling awful. So the only time they feel good is, is when they're exercising and you're trying to take that away from them. So sometimes there's underlying depression or mood issues, or they just may, may, maybe need to eat a little more or a lot more. Um, and, and, but, but it's that it's like kind of helping them get to that point where like, they probably aren't going to feel great for a little bit to feel even better, like in, in feel better, even outside of exercise, but it's always a telltale sign when someone can't take a day off, can't take, you know, maybe a week off. I mean, that's like a, big ask for a lot of people. Um, there's, and there's a lot of resistance. So that's partly where I think it's valuable to bring in some other tools as the person is starting to maybe wean off of, or, or, or taper down their exercise routine. If they can't commit to like cold Turkey or taking days off, but there's also pain. So if people are really compulsively exercise sizing, there's, um, you get an endorphin release. Endorphins are a natural opiate. So when you stop doing that, you're going to feel pain. You're going to feel like really restless and edgy, um, which doesn't feel great either. Yeah. It has to get a little bit worse before it gets better, mm-hmm. which is a tough sell. It is a yeah. tough oh, sell. Yeah. <laughs> if you know, all I have to do right now is, you know, go to the gym and I'm going to feel better after. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and everyone's telling me that exercise is great. And my doctor's telling me I, it's great that I exercise so much and I'm getting, you know, all this positive reinforcement around it. You know, I think, and, and yeah. I think, I think, I think there's a tendency for people to think, oh, when we say compulsive exercise, oh, you mean a lot of exercise. Mm-hmm. And that's, as I'm trying, I really want to articulate here. It's not like quantity, it's really quality and like how it all balances out with how the, how the body's being fueled and taken care of in the context of exercise. Yeah. And I think you're, you're right on that. That litmus test is, can you take a day off mm-hmm. and can you, and not even a week, right? Just a day. Let's look at that. So how does your iMove program help people shift their relationship with movement? Yeah. So 
it's it's broken down into like three components. There's the, a, a part where we're doing exploration. There's a lot of unpacking, like what the whether the relationship is now. There's a lot of education on the nervous system, uh, sensory integration, uh, alternative practices that help regulate the nervous system and the sensory system. And then um, there's an experiential component where we're actually doing these things together in group. So the there's a lot of uh, creating safety and connection within the group to create an, a space where people feel safe to, to, to go into the body. And we're doing, you know, practicing like through these experiential activities, just going in for small periods of time, like maybe 10 to 20 minutes, like doing something. And then there's some, um, so there's a combination of some self-inquiry and then group sharing and processing. And it's, it's really just uh, like, it creates this holding space for people that to, to connect with other people that share this experience with exercise, but also to, to learn alternative ways to regulate, to both, both to get to know their system, to become curious, like, oh, that's interesting. That's how my nervous system reacts to this and get kind of move. Um, so it's a little bit, it's like a roadmap into, into the body. Like we start from like the external relationship with exercise, how they relate to, um, how, they, how they relate to the world and what the messages they're getting about exercise. And then kind of moving into what's, what are you, you know, how, what, how does your body react to sensory input in the environment? And then we're moving into, you know, kind of talking about like what the inner world feels like, you know, like the energetic sensations that they feel like, what does it feel like to, to, to kind of like notice the breath moving in and out of the body. And it's, it, you know, in, um, in yoga, it's referred to as like the koshas, like the different kind of bodies that we have. And so kind of getting them more familiar with that and, and, in in the subtle kind of rhythm and, and information that our body is always sending us. So it's, and so when we're talking about that, it's more like interoceptive awareness, right? Like getting the body like connected and that helps with eating too. That's amazing. I love that. So you're talking about like, we start with the exploration, go into like the education, which is like transitions them to that embodiment um, element, and then actually doing some exercise, practicing what they've learned. So I feel like they really, um, the client, the participants really appreciate understanding, well, this is why we're doing this. And then we're going to do it together. So it's not like I'm sending them home and say, and telling them to do like an app. And, and meditate on their own or breathe on their own or do whatever we're doing. And, there, and there's some, some of the movement activities are really inter, integrated, like integrating the group and bringing the, you know, the group connection in. So there, the idea is that, okay, we're getting connected to the body and then moving from there instead of using movement to get out of the body. Oh, very cool. I love that. So what kind of results have you seen with people that go through your program? It's been amazing. So as I, 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 I don't, I don't know if I mentioned it before when we talked about, or in, in um, here, but I've surveyed the participants. And one of the things I've seen is that people want to continue doing the group. So they'll finish up a three month uh, session and then they want to continue on for the, for another three month session. So I would say, you know, 60% have continued on for a year, which has been really great to see because they've, they've created this really wonderful community, but around 80% re reported that it resulted in a decreased urge to exercise compulsively. Um, similar percentage reported that it resulted in a decrease in eating disorder behaviors in general. There's just an increase in flexibility. Um, I love some of the quotes that people have shared. One person said, I love that I have this safe place to feel uncomfortable. Because a lot I of- I love that. Yeah. Well, I love of, that. Yeah. So a lot of uncomfortable feelings come up, um, but they're learning to tolerate the discomfort. So we're expanding that window of tolerance for whatever emotional state presents. Another person, you know, shared that 
you know, I mean, the thing, the themes that come up are like people describe how hard it is to slow down and building up a deeper comfort level with slowing down. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people have said this is like the missing link, like having this, the bringing the body and the movement into the work feels really valuable. And it's actually, you know, resourcing the body instead of, um, in a lot of ways, I know having worked in residential eating disorder programs and having talked to like supervised clinicians for years, like a lot of times what we're asking clients to do when they go into like a residential treatment program is to essentially disconnect from their body so that they can eat. It's like, okay, just distract yourself, just distract. And what this is offering is like, okay, you can be comfortable and present. And what would that be like? And how do you, you know, how do you, and so it, it's giving them a little bit of a, um, some skill around um, to tolerating that being in the moment. I so appreciate that because I mean, life is uncomfortable, right? We go through seasons of increased discomfort. And I think there's so much to be said about the resiliency that we develop when we lean into the discomfort and learn how to, you know, not run from it, but regulate it or work through it, which I think our culture just naturally tells us to run from discomfort. Yep. yep. Um, that's really amazing. Now, this is like the athlete side of me. Cause you know, I've got the eating disorder side of me that can see, okay, if I, if I were to go through this program, I would come out of it with this increased flexibility and this less, um, a decreased attachment to the rigidity around exercise. Mm -hmm. Now, what about an athlete hearing something like this? I mean, my athlete brain goes, would I come out the other side, like a better athlete, you know, would it help me improve my athleticism? So could you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Like I can certainly see an athlete wondering, oh my gosh, am I going to lose, lose my edge? Right. Am I going to not be like, you know, as dialed in to my training? I actually think it, 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 there's a value in this because you become more connected to your body. And I think that that is huge as an athlete and um, it makes you more um, perceptive and depending on what your sport is or your activity, like being more mindful is a huge benefit and also recognizing when you need a break because that your body is such an important part of, of being an athlete, right? You need to care for your body and care. And we, we talk a lot in, in I move groups about rest as an active state your body is restoring, it's breathing, that we're never not in an active state, right? Rest is active. And, and so it's so important to, to take that time. Um, but I think that there is that, I think that's where we get, and I think I call it like the, the, yin, the yin and yang of our, 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 our cultural like kind of perception, like, you know, like yang is so valued, like doing, doing, doing more, the more, the better. And like, I think that come, that's where a lot of athletes run into, um, problems because they have this, I got to work harder. If I do more training, I'm going to be better, but, and then they undervalue the rest. And that's the yin and the importance of, um, you know, really like bringing some softening in there too. And what I loved, um, as I'm watching the winter Olympics, I hear a lot of, especially, I love the snowboarding. It's been one of my fa favorite yes. to watch. Yeah. Um, they, all talk, they all do yoga. I love it. So they're all like really, and the mental piece is so we know is so critical. We saw that in the summer Olympics, right. With, yes. um, Simone Biles, like the mental piece of, of being an athlete is just as critical as the physical. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. And I think that's my hope is that's becoming more, you know, normal thought patterns and it's more acceptable to talk about this, especially after the summer Olympics and yeah. Simone Biles, but I think, um, it is newer. And so I love hearing you say that. And I love that you're out there spreading this education and educating mm -hmm. and empowering, not just people who are struggling with this, but also clinicians who work with these people. Yeah. And I think to your point, um, in my experience, like having um, had had some athletes that really developed significant eating disorders and needed to take time off of sport, 
and, and realizing that they had a compulsive relationship with exercise, it, it becomes really hard to re-enter movement or exercise because it's only been this all or nothing, like they lost it during their recovery. And now to try to get back to it is really painful and hard. So there's a lot of avoidance. So I do think there's a value in addressing this during treatment and, and incorporating it to some ex extent and having these conversations and so that it's not this all or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's that all or nothing that gets us into trouble because mm -hmm. then what happens when we have a stress fracture or we get sick and we need to take some right. time off. Right. Right. And yeah. that's a really good question to ask too, is like, you know, what would you do ask someone like, what would you do if you didn't have exercise as a tool to cope? Like what, how, what else is in your toolbox? And I think that's really scary for some people like mm -hmm. to think about like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what would happen. And like, yeah. I wouldn't be able to function. Yeah. Um, I can't take a single day off. No. <laughs> yeah. And I get it. I mean, for some clients I work with that, that have significant trauma histories, it's the only time they feel relief from those symptoms. So it, but there's a, there's a way to kind of start gradually like providing alternatives to, to give them small windows of, of opportunity to see that, okay, there's another way, like there's another, you know, even if they can only tolerate for a short parent period of time. That's wonderful. So what would you say someone's very first step would be like, if they go, Ooh, shoot, Amy, that's me. I can't take a day off. What would be the first step in beginning this process of healing your relationship with exercise? I think, um, if, if the person's using any kind of devices to measure exercise, you know, Fitbit, um, you know, I, Apple watch, whatever you're using or your, you know, your, uh, any kind of external measurement, if you could just go without that, even for a day, like just try it. And to really to like start to tune in to what you're noticing, like either in your environment, like a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll suggest like notice three things you see or three things you hear, or what do you feel or what do you enjoy about this movement and kind of like bringing themselves into the moment a little bit more in the movement and um, just see how that shifts the experience and the quality. I think that's like one of those are the two of the first things just to kind of intentionally say, okay, I'm going to not quantify this. I'm going to just go out today and whatever it is, the activity of choice, I'm going to do this in a way that is just where I'm noticing my environment. I'm noticing my body. Yeah. And I then love that. Too, honestly, taking a day and saying, you know, I might not, I'm going to still exercise, but I'm going to do something completely new. Like I'm going to go take a dance class. Or I'm going to do something that's off the typical um, routine for me just to, because trying something new always makes you more engaged and mindful and it shifts the experience a little bit. I love that. Okay. So take the wearables off or try something new. And I, I just have to tell you this. I, I call myself a self-proclaimed ornithologist and I love watching birds. It's just like this weird thing about me, but where it came about was actually what you're talking about is when I was healing my relationship with exercise. Um, I was a runner at that time. I stopped taking my watch. I stopped measuring and I started looking for birds and we have this really cool, um, it's called the Bosque. It's right by the river. There's tons of birds here in New Mexico and it's, um, they migrate through uh, in the fall and into the winter. So we get to see so many different species and it became a hobby of mine, but it was like, even putting the watch down, not only did it help me start that journey, which I think it's so cool. You mentioned that, but it also opened up this whole new hobby that I'm now like so nerdy about. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I know. I, I for me, I actually still enjoy um, running, not as much as I, I don't do it the way to the extent that I used to, and it has, it's totally transpired. I mean, I don't, I love not listening to music. I just go, I like the, the feel of like my feet on the ground and a lot of times, like I'll just notice like the air on my face and, so, you know, so I, I'm okay, like moving into a walk and just taking it, you know, seeing how it feels and noticing like my breath and my heart rhythm and feeling really grateful to be, feel, to be able to move my body and feeling really grateful to feel so alive in, the, in that moment. And it's just such a different feeling than 
before when it would have been, oh, I gotta, I've gotta, I'm like looking at my pace and I've gotta pick it up and and like kind of pushing, am I pushing hard enough? And all like, you know, all the things I've got to do after. And it, it you know, I think it's just a, such a different experience and yeah. Yeah, it is. It's so different. Like when people ask me if I run now, I'm like, well, according to old Jess, no, I wouldn't call what I do yeah. running, but I think it's running. It's really uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay. So Amy, if people want to get more in contact with you or learn more about the different groups and programs that you offer, um, tell us how we can connect with you. Absolutely. So really easy. Um, if you want, um, you're welcome to get a free copy of my book at imovebook.com. If you're someone that's interested in, you know, exploring this as, as a clinician, if you're interested for yourself, there's some great, um, I share my personal story, but there's also some client stories in there that might be res- that might resonate with you. Um, there's also, you can also reach out to me at amy at metrowestnutrition.com. Uh, if you have questions about um, the upcoming iMove group, which will, I'm actually going to be starting one virtually in March and or the clinician training, which starts at the end of this month, February. Um, I'm actually not sure when this will air, but um, if it's airing soon, then you'll, you'll be able to access that. Yeah. So that, and then I'm on Instagram and um, I'm sure I will, um, I'll make sure to, uh, to tag uh uh, Jessica in my, in my yep. Instagram. Yeah. And I'll definitely leave all of that, um, the direct links in the show notes. So if any listeners here want to grab that, you can, I know I have my copy of iMove, which I'm super excited to dive into, dive into more of the detail. And for those of you guys who are listening, I actually connected with Amy because I attended one of her webinars and just in 60 minutes of her webinar, I learned so much. So I'm excited to keep learning from you, Amy. Thank you for being on the show and for your time today. Um, I just think what you're doing is such a gift to the world. And I'm just really grateful for what you're doing. Thank you. It was so nice to be on here, Jess, and I really appreciate sharing this time with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope it strengthened your food journey and empowered you to live boldly in your body. Real quick, sister, before you go, if you liked today's episode, the best way you can thank me is head on over to iTunes, Fuel Her Awesome Podcast, leave a review and subscribe. Then take a screenshot and share it on your social media. Don't forget to tag me at JessBrownRD. And if you're looking for more resources, be sure to check out my website, JessBrownRD.com. I've got info on my e-course, Fuel Her Awesome Food Foundations, my 10-step ebook on how to beat body bullying, and so much more. I cannot wait to chat with you babes again. Until next time, cheers and happy eating.